it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajagopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers online, in-store, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Shri and Peter. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. I'm your co-host, Peter V. Espon. As always, I'm joined by my co-host. He is an e-commerce veteran of numerous major CPG manufacturers. He's an entrepreneur. Please join me in welcoming Shri. Shri, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, Peter. A pleasure to do this with you, as always. Thank you for being an awesome co-host and partner in this journey. Before we get to our guest, I want to remind our audience that if you are interested in finding any of our content, you can find them all by just going to cpgguys.com. So let's get to the heart of our interview today. So I met today's guest last year down in Austin, I guess it was Austin, Texas, at a food and beverage uh, digital conference. Uh, we were sitting on a symposium panel together, and I found him to be very engaging. We had dinner, we chatted all night, and I found him to be an incredibly great storyteller. And the story about the business that he's launched is quite compelling. And I, I asked Jim to join us today. So please join me in welcoming um, Today's guest, the founder of Jimmy Bar, which is a nutritional bar business, which he started with his sister, uh, Jim Simon. Jim, how are you doing today? Thank you. I, I have to preface this with, you know, depending on the age of your audience listening, there are probably at least six or seven percent of people who understood your mantle, uh, your, your reference. <laughs> we're, we're, we're totally okay with that. We love the more obscure, the better. We're... We're, we're, we're good about that. As long as we're happy, we're good. <laughs> yeah, people think Derek Jeter's old, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So thank you. Um, Jim, before we get into the questions, can you tell us just a little bit about you and your, the business that you're currently operating? Because it's, it's a really fantastic business. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Yep. Um, it's been great. Big fan of yours. Uh, you know, going back to the Austin, you forgot we did have a few drinks. It wasn't just eating. There might have been some cocktails. On. There might have been some cocktails, a uh, fun party, uh, and a great business you built. So I started the company um, in 2014, uh, had no business uh, had no business experience in CPG, but it was my, this is my sixth startup that I've ran or started up or been a part of, um, and um, just saw a white space because uh, the, you know, walking through Whole Foods, um, and looking at a lot of the, uh, the products, even like Juul and, and some of the, your more mainstream grocery stores, even stuff that was supposed to be healthy wasn't healthy. And so uh, the bar, I started eating bars because I was living in New York and flying back and forth to Silicon Valley because I was working for tech companies. And I would just eat bars because it's, quick, it's a quick food. And you, you think it's healthy, but it's not. And I started, you know, reading the, the labels of the bars I'm reading and having to Google what the ingredients were. And, and uh, you know, you shouldn't have to Google your ingredients. So I uh, pitched to my sister, who was a uh, chef and a restaurateur, a well-known restaurant in Chicago for 25 years called Filippo's. And she's a chef. Her husband's a chef right off the boat from Naples, Italy. And, and I said, let's make some healthy chips or bars or something, you know, and be completely transparent and make it kind of fun. Because for whatever reason, you know, if, if you extract like the, the cereals of the world, food takes itself kind of seriously, especially natural foods take itself very seriously. So uh, we came up with, uh, with a, a, decided on bars. 
she as a chef, of course, wanted to add, you know, brown sugar and butter and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, no, 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 it's got to be healthy. Um, it's got to be a limited amount of ingredients. And, um, and so uh, I was, you know, doing uh, BizDev and, and M&A for a tech company. And, I, and then uh, we sent out an email to our friends and family and said, what, what should we call this thing? And uh, my niece had called the Uncle Dummy Bar because that's what she calls me, and I'm like, well, that's kind of funny, you know. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if I want to be known as Uncle Dummy, and so uh, she said, call it the Jimmy Bar, and we did a lot of iterations, so we we kept kept it there, even though I don't like the name Jimmy, but it sounds all American, like a golden retriever. So that's how it was born: um, fresh, healthy, tastes good, fun, approachable. Not another bar that's made for you know meatheads in the gym, and uh, we launched it uh, for fun. Um, not having a CPG background, I didn't know what slotting was. I didn't know how many middlemen there were in food. Um, I didn't know all the fees that exist. And when you send an invoice to your distributor for ten grand, you get eighteen hundred dollars back. And I didn't know what a chargeback was, so I had to learn all this this stuff. Um, and you know, first, second, third month in here, I mean, you know, because you're a tech guy, and that is when you want to do a deal with Google, you call Google. Um, there are no middlemen. Um, and so I had to learn how that whole thing works. And I said, F it. I'm just going to sell to uh, food service. So uh, my go-to-market strategy from year zero to four was selling to corporate pantry, Google, Facebook, Uber, Intel, Cisco, all those guys, Fireman's Fund Insurance. And that's what I did. And so uh, I built a nice little business that was profitable, just selling onesies, twosies directly to the corporate pantry. Then we got into college. Um, and then we got into retail. So we, we take a kind of an atypical approach um, just because I frankly didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I, I thought, well, well, companies should be profitable. You know, I didn't know how uh, CPG worked. So um, I resisted going the VC route um, only because um, I wanted to keep the company nice and small and tight and family. So we've raised some money, but all friends and family, not morally opposed to going the route of family office or VC, but for the first several years, we just wanted to keep this thing lean. And that's what we did. So let's start off by asking you about the product itself, Jim. You can market it all you want, but if it doesn't taste great, it's, it's not going to resonate with consumers. They might try it, but they won't come back. So how did you hit upon the recipes right off the bat or, or was it trial and error? I've got to assume it's a little bit more of the latter um, that ultimately led you to the products that you, you went to market with. So the original bar, you know, going back to 2014, 15, 16, 17 and a half was a date based bar. It was like a crunchy bar. tasted really good. Um, and we did pretty well with that, um, but we didn't get the marketed acceptance we wanted. Right around when this happened, um, the high-protein, low-sugar movement was happening, the Quest Bar, One Bar, et cetera. And so uh, my sister and I said, hmm, that's kind of a little more interesting to me. That, like, I like I personally love dates, but not everybody loves dates. Um, and so we wanted to get into high-protein, low-sugar, but we wanted it to taste better than the, than the products that are out there. So we pivoted there. It was a big pivot. From there, we started getting into course, which is a, an area I, I always sort of liked because that is the way people shop now. They pick it up, uh, pick up 2018, and we started getting to functional. Um, and uh, I know the, the, the other gentleman on the, the call here is big into functional. Functional is, is where it's at. 
Um, and so what we did was every bar that we made has to have functional ingredients, whether it be uh, plant-based caffeine, guarana seed, or MCT oil, or collagen, or immune bar that we launched yesterday. Everything has to have a function above and beyond nutrition, and it's got to taste good. So you got flavors like Get Jimmy With It, which is your variety pack, Wake and Focus, Citrus Burst, Keto Macadamia Nut. Yes, I said Keto Macadamia Nut and Eye of the Tiger. So you got over 10 SKUs going on over here and the recipes are not the same. Did these things just come to you? Were you going down the route of imitation is the best form of flattery? How did you guys evolve from, look, we see white space, do we know Eye of the Tiger, the caramel chocolate nut product, is the right one for us to be introducing to the consumer? So to answer your question, it's, it's always taste forward. Um, it's, uh, again, you know, my partner's a chef, right? So she thinks chocolate peanut butter is boring. Um, I think it's great because it's easy and it's profitable and people like it. So it's been this, it's been this, like kind of this push-pull conflict a little bit where she is a chef, so she's, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and she likes sweet and savory, and I keep telling her, um, there's a reason why there's not a chili pepper, uh, you know, oregano bar out there. I don't think that people want it. doesn't mean I'm right, by the way. I could be completely wrong, but in general, you know, chocolate peanut butter works and so on and so forth, so it's me being a sales guy and her being a chef, uh, you know, bumping heads in and agreeing on something, so the way we create products is I will go to Walmart and Costco in meetings, right? So and I, the, the first question I ask any buyer in a meeting is, uh, what's selling? What's hot right now? And they'll say, oh, Quest Bars are great or, you know, or Skinny Pops great or whatever. I'll say, okay, why do you think that is? You know, I ask a lot of questions, almost like a detective. Um, then the last question I ask in every meeting is, what innovation are you looking for that you just can't find? And everybody kept coming back to me saying, high protein, low sugar, anything. Like, get me a high protein, low sugar, you know, glove and I'll eat it. Like, anybody's looking for high protein, low sugar. So then I'll ask about flavor profiles. Um, and it's very interesting, the, the, the answers you get. What I was getting last year was keto, right? So the buyer from Costco, the buyer from Walmart said, get me a freaking keto bar <laughs> right away. So I come back to my sister and say, we need a keto bar. She does all the R&D. To make a keto bar taste good, I don't know if you guys have had keto bars. It's like, you know, eating a dirt sandwich. Um, yeah. So she's, she's like, we have to use macadamia nuts. Well, macadamia nuts are 10 times the cost of peanuts. So my, me being, you know, the cheap one, I'm like, nah, why don't we use something else? But we agreed on macadamia nuts. You have to use some oil in there. And it took about probably 30, 40 iterations and um, a lot of pain. But we have, a, I think, the best tasting keto bar out there. And so that's how it happens. It starts with the buyers. Uh, the buyers are looking, listening to the consumers. Um, my style of selling is I uh, ask a ton of questions. I'll date myself here, like Columbo. Remember Columbo, you know, TV show? And he's oh, always yeah. Asking, he's always asking questions. And every, all my salespeople, I always ask, you know, just you're interviewing them. You know, listen. Don't talk about yourself. Ask them what they want. And so that's how we, that's how we iterated. Um, the Eye of the Tiger Bar uh, is a friendship I have with um, uh, Jim Peterick, who's with the band Survivor. Um, and Ida March, he's a rock star. He wrote the song Eye of the Tiger for Sylvester Stallone for one of the Rocky movies. And he still owns the right to it for all food items. And he came to us and he said, hey, man, I love your bars. 
came in with his wife and his guitar and his purple hair. And he's like, hey, man, I love your bars. I'd like to give you the name Eye of the Tiger, but I want it to be this. I want it to have caffeine and turmeric for recovery because he's a workout guy. So that's how we created that. Um, but all the flavors that we start with the base of how much protein, how much sugar, and what functionality, you know, what problem we're trying to solve. Like the wake and focus was, you know, you crash at three in the afternoon. And so I said, uh, you know, I want to, you know, how every kid in America is on Adderall. I know that's, you know, politically incorrect, um, but, but they are. Um, and so I said, let's do it like a healthy Adderall bar, you know, so like, you know, just with plant-based caffeine, it's healthy. It's good for you. MCT oil for brain health, you know, throwing a, a couple other goodies in there, but it's got to taste freaking amazing. That's the Wake and Focus bar. I was just going to say, as you're telling the story, um, you made mention of the fact you wanted everything to have some kind of functional basis. Were there any other um, non-negotiables that you had as you thought about formulating all these products? What do you mean? Like it's well, I mean, I I don't want there to be, I don't want it to include these ingredients. It must do this. It must do. Were there anything? No high sugar is a great example. You know, Anything that you were doing that Gotta you be said, high protein. I won't go, I won't do it unless, unless it meets these, this criteria. High protein, low sugar. Okay. It's got to be high protein. It's got to be uh, low sugar. You know, it's got to be under 10 grams of sugar. Most of our bars are under five grams of sugar. Wow. Those are our must abs. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to make it taste good, right? But yeah. uh, when I send you guys our wake and focus bar, you'll flip. Now, the immune bar that just came out, I think it has six grams of sugar, but it's got, you know, mango, osceola cherry, and, um, and orange. But it's still, we still made it really, really low in sugar, pretty high in protein. Um, value prop on that one is it's loaded with vitamins. It's 300% of your daily amount of vitamin C. It's an obscene amount of vitamin C. Good, high protein, low sugar, functional ingredients. You referred to, you know, not coming from the CPG industry and still working with the store business model. There were several hurdles that you had to kind of encounter in terms of just trying to learn this business model, such as the word chargebacks, which is still a dirty term even today because there's a bunch of stuff clubbed into it, et cetera. And that when you actually get a PO, the real, you know, for $10,000, the real payment you get is 1800 bucks. So um, I'd love to know what were like some of those return on investment obstacles, hurdles that you actually had to face trying to get your products listed in physical stores. And then based on what you learned, all these amazing learnings of what is a chargeback and how the POs aren't exactly what they look like or what do you anticipate, et cetera. Uh, how did you actually go about your go-to-market strategy to determining I want to sell here, this channel versus that channel? And particularly if I think about it, a bar is like tailor-made for food service as well for on for during lunch lunch breaks all day long kind of consumption things of that nature so how'd you go go about this knowing that there was a lot to be learned in cpg yeah i mean it it kind of goes back to what i said about zero one through four um or year one through four our go-to-market was was food service you know, that's it. I could care less about how many doors we're in. I just wanted revenue and I wanted the company to be profitable and I wanted to keep learning. It just didn't make sense to me going into a hundred store grocery chain and paying 20,000 bucks in slotting. You know, me with a calculator can figure out real quick, I'm not going to make any money. And then also, uh, you know, some people, some salespeople I had in the past, 
would say, oh, but you got to be in this. You got to be in this grocery chain. It means a lot. It'll get us another chance. And I said, I don't care. You know, it just doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me because I didn't go out and raise 20 million bucks. Now, if I raised 20 million bucks, then it would make sense. There's nothing wrong with that strategy. Um, you can get really big um, by going that strategy. It just wasn't for me. And maybe, look, maybe it was dumb. Maybe I should have gone that route. It just, I didn't go that route. So, you know, year one through four, college, mostly uh, pantry service like the Googles and the Facebook. I love that business. It's not as clean as it used to be, um, but it's still pretty decent. I love college. College is a fantastic channel. You know, there's a, the hotels are a good channel. You're not going to get big POs. It's a lot of 200 bucks here, 200 bucks there. But for me learning, it felt right. I was using my own cash. So it was a little bit different than a lot of entrepreneurs. I was writing my own checks. Um, so I didn't want to lose 100,000 bucks a month. I wanted to figure it out. And then when the time was right, you know, I feel so comfortable now with our SKUs that now we're going a little bit bigger. Now we're getting into Costco. Um, we did a stint in Walmart. Um, we still have stayed away from grocery, which we're about to change. So grocery being probably the most expensive of all the channels, as everybody knows. Um, for us, we just it's we couldn't make money selling you know selling bars at two bucks per or three bucks per you got to sell a hell of a lot to, to make up for the slotting now we're looking at it um because we have a product offering that the chains are actually they want you know before i had a date-based bar and there's eight thousand date-based bars right now that you know we're the leaders in functional bars we come come out with more innovation with uh the immunity bar because we have our partner co-packer that's owned by my sister um uh, we can innovate so fast. That immune bar, it tastes so good. And it took us maybe 90 days, soup to nuts, you know, wrappers, box, idea, iterations, 90 days. Um, and one of my guys who works for us, he's like, if that was, you know, Mars or Kellogg's or whoever, he's like, that's two years. But we came up with an immunity bar in 90 days. So we want to be, we want to run this like a tech company, like a software company and have version 1.0, version 2.0. We joke that we're like version 4.0 right now as a company um, and stay very lean and mean and, um, and pick where we want to be. We don't have to jump. Like sometimes the best deal you do is not doing a deal. You know, if you're going to have to pay $100,000 slotting and you're going to go through a distributor who's going to nickel and dime you to death and then you're going to have to hire someone to fight the chargebacks, who needs that? There are plenty of ways to make a living. Folks, you heard it here on the CPG, guys, Some sometimes. The best deal is the deal you don't make. Well said. It's true. And Amazon's changed a lot. Like, let's face it. I mean, as you're launching your business right now, you have a choice. Do you go out and do you pay you know, X amount to get a store or do you sell it on Amazon Seller Central? You know? I'll also say I love how you describe it as version 1.0, 2.0. Shri and I, our podcast, we're in version 3.2, I think. We started on YouTube then we launched the audio podcast. Then we changed the name of our podcast. So I think we're in 3.2 somewhere. But and thank that's you. important. You, you can't, it, you know, I've never been an entrepreneur that spends a hell of a lot of time in front of spreadsheets, you know, with my two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year plan because it changes, you know, as it should change. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to be flexible. And every, every young food entrepreneur I talk to because with the co-packing side of the business, which is a separate business, we now – you know, Nettie, my sister now manufactures bars for young entrepreneurs. And I always tell them, I said, you know, be very smart where you spend your money. You know, just be very smart. If you've got an in at Whole Foods or Sprouts and, and 
go for it. But just know that there are costs. They're going to creep up with any retailer that you didn't expect. Marketing, you know, when it's two for one, you're paying for that. <laughs> they're not giving it away. They're not making less money. So, so Jim, as you're building out your physical retail footprint and your physical food service footprint, you decide to go omni-channel. So walk us through how you decided to build your own brand site and then obviously getting on to Amazon. Would love to understand, are you 1P, are you 3P, are you a combination? How did you go about bringing your, your brand into the digital world? I have to say... For a quote-unquote tech guy, I'm embarrassed at how uh, crappy I've been with our website. <laughs> you know, um, it should have been, you know, again, as you're thinking about your business right now, you can go straight directly to consumer if you wanted to. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a big appetite for that right now. For us, you know, I should have done a much better job at Amazon in 2014, 15, 16, 17. But I was out hustling trying to get into every corporate pantry and every college. I know we love college. Um, and then 2018, we started getting serious about Amazon. So now we're on FB, we're on Seller Central, we're in Canada on Amazon, we're going to Australia at Amazon, and it's a meaningful part of our business. So Amazon right now, or I'll say online in general, is you know, 25% of our business. I'd like it to be 50% of our business. Um, You've you got to spend your way on Amazon too. You know, there's not slotting fees and stuff, but you got to advertise unless you have a brand that's just catching fire and going crazy, um, you got to spend. And so people have to know that too. You, you know, CPG growth is a cash pig. You know, if you want to grow, you got to spend money. Um, for every, I know the cauliflower pizza company, they just killed it, but they came out with a product that was totally unique. The world's never seen anything like it. That's hard to do, right? In our bar space, you know, we like to think that we're the innovators and in functional, right? No one's really done functionals as a platform or immune, but we gotta still we gotta spend money and we gotta let people know about it. So online is a great way to do it. We've got ambassadors, we've got a couple hundred ambassadors that we do not pay. We send free Jimmy bars to and they talk about it and give it to their friends, and that's helpful. How do you track success on that? Great question. I wish I knew. You know, I, mean, I don't know, uh, but we like it, right? Amazon's been terrific. Our website is probably doing 25% of what Amazon does every month, but we get that first party data, which we like, and then you can retarget those people. Uh, retargeting is a big part of what we do. We do DSP on Amazon. Um, we don't do much on YouTube, and we don't do a lot of video, which I'm about to change. Um, we're going to start doing a lot on video. So truth be told, you know, 24 years in CPG, I've actually had the privilege of leading e-commerce for Frito-Lay, Johnson & Johnson, Revlon, and some of the largest multi-billion dollar global brands that have 15 years brick and mortar prior to last 10 years exclusively e-com. So when we decided to start Zenfuel, there wasn't even a question in my mind. D2C would be right off the bat and within a month we'd be Amazon 3P. But when you mix those up, You've got the scale from Amazon and of course winning on Amazon, you got to know the tips and tricks and tools and you got to leverage AMG more AMS than anything else, you know, deep believer in content, you know, words like search content, assortment, user experience, ratings and reviews. So it's like a surround sound system for Zenfiel. But I'd love to jump into Jimmy Bar and Amazon. So clearly Amazon is one of those ecosystems, especially in 2020, it's turned out to be something 10x what anybody thought across the board because shopping is largely these days 
browsed online with the funnel, then concentrating down to actually close on Amazon. What are your tips, tricks, techniques, anything you could pass on to audience to think about when it comes to Amazon? And then I do want to hit up the fun word we've been tossing around called chargebacks. Because one of the things you do have on Amazon is chargebacks. And the chargebacks are not the same as brick and mortar, and they can be awfully complex and difficult to decompose. So what, what can you share for our audience about the whole ecosystem of Amazon and how you're winning there? So Amazon's interesting. And I, I would tell any entrepreneur right now, it's a language almost. It's like learning Italian. You're not going to figure it out right away. So you get a broker, and that's what we did. So I had a, uh, I had a, 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 a VP of e-commerce that was trying to figure out Amazon for two years. It's, it's a different language. I mean, it's, you know, I'm tech savvy. He was tech savvy. My partner's tech savvy. We're all tech savvy people. We get it. But it's a different language. So we brought in a, a broker that kind of got us up to here. And then we brought on another broker that's helping us get there. And now we're doing the DSP, which is retargeting. And, um, and that's helpful too. But yeah, you do have chargebacks on Amazon and you're going to spend on Amazon. I mean, sometimes I spend more than I make on Amazon. It's not always profitable. And you, and you have to do that depending on how competitive your category is. But here's what's cool about Amazon is that if I want to go into Australia or Canada or the EU, three places, I'm in Costco, Australia right now, and we're doing quite well. So we're thinking, well, then we should be, if we're doing well and the people like our bars at Costco, they will like ordering it through Amazon Australia. And you can do it quick. I mean, that's like a 30-day kind of thing. Can you imagine trying to get into retailers in Australia in 30 days? Ain't going to happen. So it's a game changer for smaller brands. Um, same with the EU. You know, We're getting courted right now from a lot of, Amazon brokers in the EU who can help, help us get in the EU. Very interesting. Can you imagine trying to get into the, you know, I want to, you know, I mean, we're in like TJ Maxx, Poland and Germany and Austria and stuff like that, which is awesome business. But can you imagine trying to get in the grocery stores in Poland and Austria? Not going to happen. So Amazon level sets everything. It changes everything. But it, <laughs> you got to know what you're doing. And I'm not going to tell you, I do, because that's why I hire um, a, a broker. And I have a, a really good brokerage company that all they do is Amazon, and it's still hard, you know. And one thing I'll, I'll you know, I'll tell any entrepreneurs, you're going to have to spend. But the cool thing about Amazon is if you're getting your butt kicked one month, you can lower the, your spend. I mean, you can, you can turn it off and turn it on, and you can control. You have more control with Amazon than you do with um, traditional retail, for sure. But it's not like this magic thing that happens. Since we're connected on LinkedIn, I see you in my feed practically every week announcing another retail deployment. Military commissaries, travel centers, get-go, GTM, Rite Aid, CVS, Costco, the list goes on and on. You made mention of the fact that you really didn't go that route when you broke out of the box because of all those, those ROI obstacles. What changed that made it so that you could go after those? Was it purely scale? And what is going to enable you to succeed in grocery where you said there are the most ROI obstacles? Yeah, good question. It was, it was a couple of things. A, we raised money. You know, we did a friends and family round. So I finally had a little, you know, financial ammunition to go in there. Because at some point you're going to have to get some distribution because not everybody shops on Amazon and you want multiple points of distribution online, offline, et cetera. So we picked the channels that we thought we'd do well. Drugs been real nice for us. Um, groceries still stayed away from um, only because 
it's not like, you know, we did a deal with Rite Aid and automatically overnight it puts us in 2,500 stores. That's great. Um, but there isn't that grocery guy that can do that. I mean, Kroger's a couple thousand stores. That's fantastic. Um, and then Whole Foods, we'd love to be in all the Whole Foods. We, we're not yet. We're still trying on that one. But it's a, it's a longer sales cycle. Um, so what we did is we raised a little money. Um, our product offering uh, was evolving and so that it, it, it was sort of mass merchant friendly. Um, and then we started calling on everybody and you know, you're going to get yeses and you're going to get noes. And, and then when we got the yeses, we evaluated and said, you know, can I make money here? Or if I can't make money, is it worth it to the brand? You know, is it worth it to be in retailer X? You know, I'll lose money, but it's pretty close. You know what I mean? Or am I going to spend money here and I'm just going to get blown out of the water? And my answer is always no on that one. It just doesn't make sense. So we picked retailers where we think there is a path to profitability, either from day one or maybe year two or three, right? Um, and then we just went for it. And I still like alternative, like alternative, the alternative channels, the TJ Maxx's and the Marshall's. I love those guys. They're just nice people to work with. And so for lack of a better word, I try to work with nice people. A quick follow-up question before Sri jumps in. You mentioned 1P data and the access. Have you been using that 1P data to fuel your sell story into physical retail? And, and, and if so, has it been productive? Yeah, you can. I mean, there's some cool stuff you can do with Facebook where you can take your first-party data. You can find look-alike, you create look-alike audiences on Facebook and try to match them up. We know who our customer is online. You know, it's, uh, we skew a little bit female, we skew a little bit younger, um, we skew people who healthy lifestyle. So we're, we're building audiences. For example, when we're building a Facebook audience to drive Australians into Costco's in Australia, we're using the same lookalike audiences on Facebook that we use here in the States. Um, 60, 40 female, you know, 21 to 49, uh, middle to upper income, health is a lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera, all that kind of stuff that you guys know how to do. That's what we do worldwide because it seems to be the same audience. Email marketing is, I think, the most underrated marketing in the world. You saw our email yesterday. I love it. Like we kill it. When we do an email blast, I mean, it doesn't cost anything because we're using, you know, MailChimp or whatever. So it's, it's straight profit. We love it and we'd love to use it more. And then LinkedIn is the greatest PR firm in the world. You know, it's incredible. I got a, I got an email today, which this happens never from a retailer and a good retailer. Um, and the impulse buyer who said, Hey, I saw your immune bar that's super on trend. Um, semi samples were very interested. You know, that never happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram for the influencers. YouTube, we're starting to do videos now. You have to use, I was listening to, uh, I forget what, uh, it was a bar company, but I forget who it was, one of the ones that I sold. And they said they use 20 channels. You know, 20 channels that, that are in their mix of how they uh, promote their product. You know, Jim, I don't think those things are negotiable in 2020, like the channels of <clears throat> communicating with the consumer. But, Speaking about the go-to-market for channels of selling to the consumer, I feel in just talking to you, I sense that, you know, you hustle a lot by going and meeting with retailers, et cetera, and physically being present when starting up new businesses other than obviously the Amazon one is self-supported sitting on a computer at home. But um, in this sort of a ecosystem where travel doesn't exist or 
is significantly constrained because of the pandemic. Has there been any impact on the overall business in terms of going and selling? I'm pretty sure there is in terms of food service and from a final outcome from a consumer perspective. But my question is more around the ability to go distribute versus the ability to sell. Yeah, good question. So my, my food service business is down 100%. I mean, if it could be down more than 100%, it would be. I mean, food service is just kaput, which sucks because it's a good channel. College and, you know, I love hotels and the corporate pantry. It's just not happening right now. So you got to be really scrappy. So we're doing subscription boxes. We're, we're pushing harder on Amazon. We're pushing harder on alternative. I'll tell you what else we're doing uh, international. International has been like a real bright spot for us where we're getting into these places internationally that we didn't really think about. I'm talking to some retailers in Asia right now uh, that have reached out to us. So we've been very scrappy on that one um, because you can't meet with people. There's also a lot of virtual meetings that are happening. Um, So we've been doing the the speed dating with ECRM, which I love. I love that. Um, So anybody who will talk to me, I'll talk to, but the brand, you know, bars is down 50, 60, 70% as a category. Um, we're up this year. We're going to finish up. We're going to finish up. We're going to finish profitable. So we're having a great year. And I was talking to my wife who, who's, uh, AKA one of my salespeople. And she's like, you know what? She's like COVID in a weird way has made us a better business. And she's right. You know, it has made us a better business. You know, we were lucky that my sister owns a co-packer, so we've got that family relationship. It's made them a better business. They're very lean and mean. I got, we did skew, skew rationalization. I got rid of 20 SKUs. You know, a lot of the SKUs that you see on the website, they're going to be no more soon. You know, we push the stuff that works. Keto's killing it. Wake and focus. Immune. We're innovating fast. So it's forced us to be a better business. It's forced us to trim a lot of fat. You know, my payroll is down 50%. Um, we'll finish net, you know, net positive cash flow wise. Um, we're a better business than we were before. It's been a hard year. It's been a really weird year. I miss being on the road, you know, cause I was on the road three weeks out of the month probably. Um, but it forces you to be a better business. And if you look, I was doing some research, the depression spawned a lot of really good companies and the recession of 2008 Fund a lot of really good companies. And so I think like better companies are going to survive. As you mentioned earlier, as you started to scale this business out, you shied away from venture capital or other types of institutional investments. Uh, and you decided to seek funding from people that you were close to, friends and family, as it's common called. Walk us through that and why you think that's been successful for you. Well, I'll walk you through it, but I, I'll preface it in saying, I don't know if that's the smartest route. Okay. Um, it was the best, you know, I started the business in my late forties and, and this was my sixth, right? So I had been through the venture capital thing. I've also started companies and that I've sold that I self-funded. Um, so there's no magic bullet, but anytime I talk to an investor and I talk to them when they come into my sister's co-packer and they're like, I've got this great idea for this bar. I said, do you have money? Well, no. I'm like, you got to get money because I don't want this. I don't want to see anybody lose money. You have to have access. Do you have a rich uncle? Do you have, you know, a friend who's a venture company? You got to have access to capital or it's just not going to work. I mean, growth is a cash pig, as I said before, you got to have access to capital. So what I did was I used my own. Then I went to um, uh, friends and family. And I'm very lucky that I've got uh, friends who are also entrepreneurs who have done well. 
And so uh, we did it that route. But I'm not saying that the best route because it there's, comes with a lot of pain. First of all, it's the first time I've ever taken friends' money. Um, I'm a warrior to begin with. I don't want to lose anybody's money. I'd rather jump off a building. I mean, I don't, I don't want to lose anybody's money. So that comes with its own pain. If you go the VC route, um, and if they're a good VC, it's a great relationship because you have access to capital and they're pulling for you. They want you to have an exit. If you go with a VC who's not great, <laughs> that comes with its own set of problems too. I've been through that one too. So I'm not saying that, that my route was the best. It just made sense for me at my, you know, at the, at the age I was at, you know, uh, if I was 25, I probably would have gone out and raised 5 million bucks and, and maybe I would have sold the business, you know, for 60 million bucks and be the next exit, or maybe I would have blown through it. And, you know, I'd be, uh, you know, uh, working at Olive Garden or something and busting tables. I don't know. But for me right now, it was the, it was the right way. And, and there might be, you know, I might be raising money from VCs in the future to get to the next level, but, you know, because this business is so cash sensitive, what I wanted to do was flip it on that's a little, a little bit and say, let's be cash flow positive. Let's do something crazy. And I don't have to be in 20,000 stores. I don't have to be in every whole sprouts in America. I'd like to be, it would be awesome, but can I afford to be, you know, that question. Um, and every, every time I, I see someone on shark tank and they say, I got every bed, bath and beyond with my, you know, soap product i'm like you have no idea what that's gonna do you know it's expensive it's weird to you know like you know when i was in technology if you book a million dollar deal for a million bucks you know uh, if your partner's uh, you know in our business we know that it costs money you know and that doesn't even take into consideration you know all the money you got to spend in market so I think to answer your question, Peter, I don't know if it's the, I don't know if it's the smarter route. I look at some of the exits. I mean, what if there are five or six major exits in bars? Every one of them took money in. Um, one of them had some family money, but every one of them went out and raised money. It clearly worked for them. Um, so sometimes I feel like a kind of a dummy. I'm like, God, I wish I would have raised 10 million bucks when I had people calling me 14 times. So Jim, one of the things that comes to my head is, you know, we've already talked innovation, how you did go to market, your assortment rationalization. So we got into the meat of this business and how running a fast moving ingestible food product built for, for health and wellness also requires a significant amount of investments to succeed and scale. And you earlier did say, which I subscribe to the theory, you don't have to be everywhere. And sometimes the deals you don't take are probably the best deals you ever made. Keeping all that in mind, if I asked you for budding entrepreneurs out there, irrespective of age, 25, 45, um, I haven't started this journey exactly yet. I've spent 25 years in corporate America, so I can probably date myself in a few seconds over here, and then I decided to go start a brand. Um, what's your advice for budding entrepreneurs in 2020 given there are changes in the ecosystem of retail. One retailer is hogging most of the attention and D2C will never fail you. I would say if, if I was, I mean, you're different because you have 25 years of experience and you know what you're doing. But if I, I would say someone that is new to CPG, I'd say start direct to consumer. Start to direct to consumer the first couple of years. Figure out who you even are. You might not even, you know, you, like I, we've had two big 
pivots, you know, in, in our first seven, six and a half years of business, go direct to consumer and figure out how do people like your product? Do they not like your business? Your packaging look good. Have that one-on-one relationship. Now, there are some great retailers out there, but I would think, say go to direct to consumer first, learn who you are, and then go to retail. Because you don't want to make a big mistake. You don't want to go into Walmart nationally with a product that stinks, you know, with packaging that nobody likes. You're going to get killed. Well, let me remind our audience that to find all of our content, podcast audio on 15 platforms, our YouTube channel, the list of our favorite podcasts, the companion materials to our profitability series. Just go visit cbgguys.com. Or if you're walking around the house and you want to be entertained and educated at the same time, well, you can do that through your virtual assistant. Just make sure to say, hey, ask Alexa to play the CPG Guys podcast. I knew I set off probably about 20 or 30 just by doing that and people listening in in their house. In any event, I apologize if I just triggered your Alexa. But in any event, uh, just go to cpgguys.com. That's where you can get all this content. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us today. Uh, Very interesting, very different. We, We really love to feature founders on this business, entrepreneurs who are getting into this space. So you've given us a different angle that, that I know our audience is really going to like. Please tell people how they can learn more about Jimmy Barr and, and you in particular. So jimmybars.com, um, uh, buy as much as you can and eat it and you'll love it. <laughs> um, but as far as uh, anybody wants to communicate with me, just shoot me a LinkedIn. Um, I would love to chat with anybody, retailers, budding entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. CPG can be extremely fun. There is something about, you know, when you grow and you get into retailers and you're growing on Amazon, it's just fun. It's really fun. Later today, if you see an order come through from the west side of Manhattan, gee, I wonder who that could be. On on 10th Ave, I won't give it away more than that. Okay, we even, yeah, we don't want people hunting you. <laughs> this was terrific. Shree, thanks again. This was really interesting because I think you, you brought a lot of perspective to what Jim is doing. Uh, thank you for helping me formulate the questions, and I thought this was a successful episode. A pleasure as always, and thank you thanks, so much guys. for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom as well as your entrepreneurial journey, not just Jimmy Bars, but how your previous entrepreneurial journeys shape what you do in FMCG, which is such a radically different category compared to all the other things you've done. So I also want to thank you in particular for the radical transparency. That is pretty cool. Yeah, right on. Thank you, guys. Good luck with your venture. Peter, you're great as usual. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed being here. Um, Take care. Be safe. Yeah, thank you. And to everyone on our audience, we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Take care. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own. 
and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPT Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPT Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.